St. James, uh, glad that you guys are here this morning, and welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. We're glad that you're worshiping with us as well. Uh, just real quick with the announcements. Today, there's after the worship service this morning, all of the regularly scheduled events like the prayer meeting and the youth confirmation are postponed till uh, next week, so there'll be nothing today. Also, Tuesday morning, the men's Bible study. It's in the bulletin that it's happening, uh, but we're taking a break Tuesday morning, so there's no men's Bible study there. Uh, other than that, make sure you read the announcements and look at the notices and see what's going on. All right, uh, let's stand it and we'll pray. And we'll get into worship. God, be with us today. Uh, 
uh, we desperately need you. We need your love. We need your peace. We need your word. We need your hope. And we confess and admit that we've tried to do things our own way. And um, we just need you to come and fix things and to make things new again. And give us a taste of that this morning in this worship service. Help us to get a glimpse of your new creation and the promise that you are determined by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection to make all things new. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us confess our sin to God. O Lord, merciful Father, you keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We confess that we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We have not heeded your law, nor have we rejoiced in your gospel. We confess that things have fallen apart. But Lord, you keep covenant even when we do not. Your love is steadfast when ours is frail and fallible. You are faithful even when we are faithless. We want you to be our God, and we want to be your covenant people. Grant us the gift of faith. By your Holy Spirit, work in us steadfastness and singleness of heart that we might manifest your love in the keeping of your commandments and the living of your gospel. O Lord, merciful Father, hear our prayers in the name of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new and eternal covenant, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. Oh 
Let's read Psalm 111 together. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is kind of a weird one. Exodus 13. And it's, the reason why we're reading it is because in the gospel reading, which we'll read in just a few minutes, it references Exodus 13. So in Exodus 13, it's right after God has delivered Israel out of Egypt. And um, uh, you, you know, the, the Passover uh, miracle in Egypt was this uh, deliverance of Israel and also the death of the firstborn of whoever rebelled against God. And God says, because of that, your firstborn belonged to me. And he creates a system for uh, Israel, his people, redeeming their firstborn, like giving to God an offering in order to acknowledge that the firstborn, that the firstborn is kind of a tithe. The firstborn is a sign that God owns all of us and all of our kids. And so it's a kind of a weird reading, but that's reflected, and we'll see it again in the gospel reading in a minute. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, the epistle reading, Colossians 3, uh, uh, Paul writing. This is the sermon text for this morning. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, Andy and Shayla and Caden and sponsors, if you guys want to come forward. All right, this is Caden James Walsh, Andy and Shayla's son. We're going to do this uh, several months ago, and then, uh, well, we don't live in a world where you can make those sorts of plans, and they uh, come out. So we're going to do it today. We're going to, uh, uh, baptism, give me like 30 seconds to talk about what ba- baptism is and what baptism means. Um, 1 Peter 3.21 says that baptism now saves us through a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the questions that we as Christians have is, how is baptism able to do this? And one of the mistakes we make is thinking that it's water that's being claimed there. Water doesn't save us, but baptism is, as Luther says in the, in the catechism, uh, you know, how is, how is baptism, how, how is water able to do great things like saving people? And Luther says, certainly not water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things. The word of God has the power to save us. Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Baptism is nothing more than the word of God in liquid form. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ presents his church to the Father spotless, having washed them with the water of the word. It's a clear reference to baptism. And so when we baptize our babies or when we, get sa- when we come to faith, we get saved and we get baptized, we believe that God is giving us his word in a physical form, just like he gives us his word in audible form. And that's why baptism has this power. So we baptize Caden. We pray that God would sanctify him and bring him up in the nurture of admonition of the Lord. Um, parents and the sponsors make promises to teach him God's word and to bring him to uh, church and to teach him the gospel. And we all are going to make those promises today as well. And that's, how, so that's one of the ways, it's a, it's a lot of things to say about baptism, but that's the 30-second version of one of the things that baptism is doing. So, Andy, you want to bring Caden here? Caden James Walsh, received the sign of the cross on your forehead and upon your heart marking you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified and risen. So parents and sponsors, I have some questions for you. Do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? If so, say yes. And do you believe in the God who is revealed to us in Scripture and whom we confess in the Apostles' Creed? And if so, could you all stand now? We're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. It's in your bulletin, but it's on the back side of the sermon. And if you guys agree to this, we'll all say it together now. I'll give you a second to turn there. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You all may be seated.
in light of Jesus' command not just to baptize, but also teach everything he commanded? Do you promise to bring Caden to worship with the gathering of God's people, teach him the commandments and the promises of the gospel, and pray for his spiritual growth? If so, say yes. May God help you to do this important work so that Caden will be faithfully brought up in the arms of Jesus. Okay, do you want to backwards? Caden James Walsh, get a little bit closer so the water goes. I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. May God, who has caused you to be born again of water and the Spirit, and has forgiven all your sins, strengthen you with his grace unto life everlasting. Amen. Okay, so I'll take Caden. We'll see how this goes. Turn my mic off. And we're going to sing uh, Jesus Love Me, Loves Me Together. Preserve your coming out and your going in from this time forth and even forevermore. Go in God's peace. You guys may return to your seat and we will sing the sermon hymn.
Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 2. So this is the aforementioned Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple to do according to the Jewish ritual to to pay the redemption price, acknowledging that uh, Jesus is actually, like all of our kids, is actually not ours, but a gift from God to us to steward. And you'll notice here, you're gonna, uh, some of you will recognize language from our liturgy. Uh, the Nunc Dimittis is in here too, and this is the context for it. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and, Jesus, Jesus brought, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it's written in the law of the Lord. Here's from our Exodus 13 reading. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's the redemption price. You pay two pigeons. There's, it's, it's graded according to economic status, the Old Testament does. The fact that this is the very, very lowest price you could pay to, rede- to redeem your child, two pigeons, shows us that Mary and Joseph are in the lowest of all the economic categories that you could be in at that time. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for, the glory, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. It's kind of a fancy way of saying she got married, and then seven years after she got married, her husband died, and she didn't get remarried, which in a culture like that with no sort of social security is extremely weird. For, weird not in a bad way, but just odd that a woman would stay single. She's a prophetess, and she was apparently serving in the temple. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So you may be seated, and if you can do me a favor and flip back over to the Colossians reading, and we're going to read that this morning and talk about that for a few minutes. Um, Let me give you just a little lay of the land here. This is, so a lot of you know this, for for those of you who don't, I'll just, this is the way it works. Uh, We use lectionary readings around here, which is, uh, we have an Old Testament reading, an epistle reading, and a gospel reading, and uh, the lectionary readings are readings that are shared by churches, l- churches that are largely uh, confessional or liturgical, uh, shared by these churches all over the world. I have uh, this morning, so, so I know for a fact that the uh, 
Methodist church across the street read the exact same text that we just read, and the Roman Catholic church across the street read the same text that we read this morning. And there's something kind of nice about that, that we are sharing in this, we're reading the same scriptures together uh, this morning. One of the weaknesses of this, of course, though, is that the lectionary doesn't cover everything in the Bible. It covers a lot, the, the most important things. But there are some parts of the Bible that the lectionary doesn't cover. And so what I like to do from time to time is to step away from the lectionary. When I, when I want to talk about something that's not in the lectionary, or if there's something that is in the lectionary, but I, I want to spend more time on it than the lectionary gives me. Sometimes the lectionary will have us read like 15 verses at a time, and I just want to talk about two verses. Um, one, of the, one of the places that the lectionary doesn't cover is the book of Esther. I think that actually over the three years in, in the church, the three-year church calendar, there's like two verses in Esther chapter 7 or 8 that get mentioned in the lectionary. Other than that, Esther doesn't show up. Esther's a fantastic story, and Esther, also, Esther is a great way, digging into Esther is a great way for, under, for us to understand what does it mean to be God's people in what at this point in time is admittedly a post-Christian world. What does it mean to live as God's people in a pagan culture? Which that's what Esther is all about. And so next week, starting next week, we're going to spend, I think it's like nine weeks on Esther. Esther's, I think, ten chapters, so it's basically a chapter a week. And we'll kind of work through it and we'll ask, like, how is God active in a world where God doesn't appear to be active and doesn't appear to be any space for him to be active? So we'll start that next week. Meanwhile, this week, we're going to stick with the lectionary readings for the first Sunday after Christmas on the, Lark, on, on the Luke cycle. We're in the Luke cycle this year, so we'll read a lot of the Gospel of Luke this year. Colossians 3, what is this? This is, a, this is the reading for this Sunday. What does this have to do with uh, Christmas? There's no mention of any babies in mangers and things like that. But the reason why this is in the Christmas lectionary reading is because it follows after uh, um, uh, Colossians 1, 2, and 3, which is talking about how God became a human being in order to fix the problems of this world, and he unites those who believe in him to himself so that what's true about Jesus becomes true about us. And then the section for this morning is the payout of that. So basically, the, the Colossians 3, the verses that we're going to read here in a minute, that we read a few minutes ago, I'm going to reread. Basically, this has to do with what does it mean to live in a, Christ, in a Christmas world, in a world where God has become human and joined us to himself and has given us these gifts. And so um, verse 12, you can say it says, put on then, that then is referring back to verses that we haven't read which you can read on your own, but it's what I just described to you. If God has become human, if our God, is, this, is what, this is the thing that makes Christians different than any other religion or philosophy in the world, is that our God is actually a human being. The creator God is a construction worker from Nazareth. If that's the case, and he's joined us to himself, then what's, what can we say is true about us and the way that we should live and the way he's living for us? Four things in this text. It talks that it's going to unpack this, okay? So it has to do with the love of Christ, has to do with the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. These four things, the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. So let's start off by looking at the love of Christ in verses 12 through 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here's what it is we're supposed to put on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay, so verse 14 says, above all these, put on love. What does that mean, above all these? Real quick, let's do this. Um, that sounds like what he's saying is that love is the most important. It's not what he means, actually, although love is super important, right? But what he's saying here is, I don't know if you caught this, Paul likes to do this. He likes to talk about putting on clothes as an imagery for like putting on identity. Like so in Galatians 3, he says, you have put on Christ. And it's like the, the, the images of like putting on some clothes and that's your new uniform. So here he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, etc. Compassion and hearts, whatever, keep on going. Um, putting on then, like putting these on as clothings. And then when you get to verse 14, and above all these, put on love. So he's not saying love's most important. He says, on top of all the clothes I just told you to put on, on top of all that, put on love. So love is the garment that goes over top and makes sense of the whole outfit, right? Which, look, he says here, the love that you put on, on top binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what he means is this, is that love is the overarching thing that, he want, that God is wanting you to put on. Back in verse 12, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, compassionate hearts. These are all different practical ways of being loving, right? Love is like the big picture, having compassion, being patient, uh, tenderhearted. These are like micro ways to be loving. So basically when he gets to verse 14, he says, I'm gonna sum it all up. Like be loving, be loving. And, and the caps, like the highest point of love is in verse 13, is forgiveness, right? Bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiveness is like the highest form of love. Forgiveness is the highest form of love. So uh, let me say it to you this way. For, love has to be embodied or it's worthless, right? Love that's not embodied doesn't really help anybody out. And in fact, it's kind of damaging. Ever, you all have known somebody before who's like hurt somebody like really bad. And when asked about it, says, well, I really do love them. And you, you want to say like, well, that's, you know, there's, there's a disconnect there, right? I, was, uh, I can't even remember why I was reading something about um, uh, Jackie Onassis Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy. And uh, she was asked by her biographer, and I can't remember her biography. Somebody might remember that. Like, so you knew about your husband's womanizing, and you knew about all of his affairs. Why did you stay with him? And, her, and, and, and she said, because I knew deep down that he loved me more than all of them. And there's, a, a, I know what she means. I, I know that she means that, that uh, Jack Kennedy had deep affection for her, which I'm sure, she, I'm sure he did, you know, that he really, really deeply cared for her. But it didn't actually help him to be faithful to her sexually, right? And so, like he's saying, I really, really love you, but it's not actually helping her. And in fact, in many ways, it's deeply manipulative to cheat on a spouse and then insist, but I really deep down inside, I love you. So you, you should be, you know, hang, hang with me. What I'm saying is that there's something wrong about, you know, I, I have these feelings for love, but it doesn't actually result in actions that benefit the other person. Okay, so here's what you can do then. Here's, the, here's, here's our options. You can start doing nice things for people, right? That's one option. Like, you could start doing things out of that love. Like, I could get Angela flowers, or I could buy my kids treats, or I could start texting my friends more often. 
But, but you all see the danger of that. Too. I mean, that's good. It's possible to give flowers to a spouse or a friend or a loved one, significant other, or to be nice to you. It's, it's possible to like, you know, make waffles for your kids or whatever it is, and it be genuine. But it's also possible that that's manipulative too. It's possible to do things out of love, which are actually ways, like it's possible for me to buy Angela flowers because I'm trying to get on her good side. Or it's possible for me to do something nice and say something nice to you. I find myself doing this because I'm totally like a people pleaser with my words. Like saying nice things to people in order to butter them up. And that's just as manipulative. So what are you going to do? Like you have this love internally for somebody, but it's not totally clear if you act on that love that it's going to actually be genuinely loving and even perceived as genuinely loving. What's the option? Here's where I'm headed with this. It's kind of a circuitous route to get to this point. Forgiveness Forgiveness is the one thing that always embodies love perfectly. Forgiveness does. Why? Because forgiveness never, ever asks back for something for itself. I know there's a sort of cheap forgiveness where, hey, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the other person says yes, and you're like, okay, now you're supposed to say it too. There's that sort of cheap forgiveness. But real genuine forgiveness, here's the definition of real genuine forgiveness, like in the Bible or in your own life. Taking the pain that somebody else has caused you and carrying it for them and releasing them from that pain that they rightly caused you, right? So in, in the story about, I, I don't even know these people, of course, right? And I, I don't even know very much about these people, so I could be totally boshing this up. If there's any like Camelot junkies out there, you can correct me after the service. But in the story I was telling, Jack Kennedy says that he loves her. It's actually, it seems to me more likely the fact it's, it's, that, that, it's that she's loving him because she's taking the pain that he's causing her. Now, I'm not arguing that this is good, by the way, too, right? I mean, the Bible says that if there, there's, there's biblical grounds for divorce if your spouse cheats on you. I'm, so I'm not saying that that's good. But what I am saying, though, is that she is taking the pain that he's causing and wearing it herself and releasing, just in the story I told, releasing her from that pain. That's what forgiveness is. Look, if, if I come and I do something bad to you, let's say that I tell, let's say that I tell somebody a lie about you and it hurts your reputation. And I, I feel bad about that, you know? Or maybe it comes out and I get caught in the lie. And I come to you and I say to you, I say, hey, can you please forgive me for lying about you? You, you have two choices in that moment. You can say, this idiot caused me a ton of pain. And now I need him to feel that pain. No, forget you. I'm not forgiving you. If you're going to forgive me, though, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to say, this guy caused me a ton of pain. I'm going to release him from that pain, which he should feel because he's the one who caused the pain. And I'm going to carry that pain for myself. That's the highest form of love because it's completely self-giving. In, in that scenario, even your reputation gets given up for the sake of forgiving me. And of course, there's all kinds of things to say here too. Stuff needs to be made right. If I want forgiveness, I need to go and I need to repair your reputation. I need to go to the people I lied to and, and also confess to them. Hey, I lied about so-and-so, I was wrong. So, so, but in the story, like forgiveness is, in the story of Jack Kennedy and the story of me, forgiveness is you taking on the pain that I've caused you or Jackie taking on the pain that Jack Kennedy caused her. This is what Jesus, this is a perfect example of what Jesus does for us. God becomes a human, inserts himself into our story as a human being, instead of construction worker in Nazareth, so that he can take all the pain that we rightfully deserve, the pain of hell, the pain of uh, divine punishment. He takes that on himself and releases us scot-free. 
That's the purest, the highest form of love. That's the love of Christ. And now here in Colossians 3, Paul says, turn that around. You've experienced that. Like, so, so let's say that Angela sins against me, which is a, this is a crummy example because it always, it's the other way around usually. But let's say Angela sins against me and I decide I'm not going to forgive her. Like she was real snarky this morning over breakfast. I'm, I'm going to hold that against her for a couple of days. I'm going to give her the quiet treatment. I'm going to give her the cold shoulder. How does that make sense with the fact that all the bad things I've done in my life, and I can't even tell them to you up here, because I would be so ashamed that Jesus has said to me, Aaron, you are forgiven. I'm letting you off scot-free, and I'm going to take all the pain that you deserve for doing that damage to your family and to your friends. I'm going to take all that pain. How do I have a right to say to Angela, oh, she was kind of snarky with me over breakfast. I'm not going to talk to her at dinner tonight. It just doesn't make sense in the gospel. If I really am living in the gospel, I should be passing out forgiveness, even at cost to myself, passing out forgiveness. That's what the gospel does, the love of Christ. Second thing here is the peace of Christ. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this isn't the... the the peace of Christ, I, I know that what we want to do right now is we want to see that as like internal peace. Like I'm not anxious, like my anxiety, you know, Jesus is taking care of my anxiety and my, maybe my depression or the fact that I'm worried or scared. That's, I hope that that's the case. Jesus can help you with that, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about internal peace. He's talking about relational peace. Peace with other people who you might be in conflict with. You get this, look at, look at the rest of verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed... You were called in one body. So that's church language. It's the peace of Christ that he gives us in the one body. Right? Relationships get broken. Relationships get strained. The closer you get to somebody, the harder it is to have peace in that relationship. Christ gives us that peace. And by the way, there's a reason why this is coming so soon after the forgiveness and love part. Because relational peace can't happen unless there's forgiveness. You can't have peace in a relationship unless there's forgiveness Unless somebody decides, I'm going to take the pain of this and let you off scot-free. I'll give you an example. I have this so far since my kids have gone to Lutheran school. I've had this conversation, no lie, at least once a year. And it goes like this. It has to do with basketball, grade school basketball. It goes like this. I'll be sitting next to somebody in a gym, or the, we had it this year, and I was actually sitting with somebody in a restaurant who had just a, a, a few previous nights had been at a Lutheran grade school basketball game. And they said, man, I just hate this. They do the same thing they do every year. They run up the score on us. They were up by 50 at halftime, and in the third quarter, they were still full court pressing. I just can't stand them. And I always think to myself, yeah, but you remember three years ago when you, your team was better than that, and your coach did it to them. This is just the payback for three years ago when you ran it up on them. And there's this cycle, and I've told you guys this story before. I have a, a friend, he doesn't go to church here, uh, he goes to a different Lutheran church in the area who told me, I can't even worship in the sanctuary of some church that also in the area because of eighth grade basketball. I can't even go into their building. Like, how deeply depraved is this? Like, how deeply broken is this? But you know what? It keeps on building up year after year. So my kids go to Good Shepherd, and the head coach of Good Shepherd is dang sure going to try to run up the score on the people who ran up the score on, on, there's lots of different coaches at Good Shepherd. This is sort of, this is not a single person. It's just like a, a mixture of people. And, you know, you got people who've coached before here, Eric, you got Jared back there, Annie, Annie, they've coached. So I'm not judging them at all. They, of course, don't do this. So how does this cycle get broken? 
How does this cycle get broken? I'll tell you how. Somebody is going to have to get the score run up, run up on them and decide next year our seventh graders are really good and next year we're going to have a really good team and we're going to play this other team that just ran up the score on us next year and we're not going to do it. The pain that they're causing me right now, our parents are upset because their kids are embarrassed on the court. I'm upset because like, my kids can't even pass the ball because of this full court press. you got eighth graders who are six feet out there, girls team. right? So our kids can't even function. I'm not going to pay that forward next year. I'm not going to pay. It has, somebody has to decide, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to take the pain of this blowout, and I'm going to eat it. And I'm going to let that opposing team off next year scot-free, no questions asked. That is so hard to do. It's only the gospel that can liberate us to do that. It's only the gospel that can liberate us to have the love of Christ to forgive, which brings the peace of Christ. And honest to gosh, like the, uh, it's the only thing that's really going to, maybe, maybe I'm seeing things too simplistically, but it seems to me like grade school basketball is a real barrier to Christian fellowship in Southern Illinois, Lutheran District. And I'm not preaching against grade school basketball, but somebody's going to have to eat it. Some, if, if we want peace in the church of Jesus Christ, Somebody's going to have to decide, I'm going to forgive like Jesus forgives. I'm going to take the pain somebody else is causing me, and I'm going to wear it on my shoulder. I'm not going to act like it doesn't exist. I'm not going to be like, oh, it's okay. I'm going to feel the pain, but I'm not going to pay it forward to them. I'm going to give it back to Jesus. The love of Christ leads to the peace of Christ. Third thing here, the word of Christ, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's four things in this verse that I want to point out. I'm going to point out three of them now, and I'm going to save the, 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 the fourth one for the uh, last point. There's uh, three things here about the word of Christ I want you to see. First of all, <clears throat> verse 16. So, actually, let me say this. The word of Christ, there's a question. Is it the word about Christ, or is it the word from Christ? I think it's the word from Christ. And then let's talk about the Bible. Let the word of Christ, let, let God's word, whether it's here, or whether it's in water form, bread and wine form, let that dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So what does that mean for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly? There's a couple of things that word richly means. One is it means you've got a lot of something. Something that you're rich in is something that you have a lot of. You might be rich in grandkids, or you might be rich in crabgrass in your yard. You might be rich in money. So, but, but being rich is something that you have a lot of. So the basic meaning is, you should have a lot of scripture. You need to be regularly reading your Bible, studying God's word, meditating on it, memorizing it. If, you, if you're not there right now, just start off easy. Just start reading a chapter or two every day. You've got to be in God's word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Means a lot of it. Soak in it. Let it become the thing that you're marinated in. Something else that richly means is that it's the, it's the thing that you give value to. It's, it's your treasure. It's your riches. What is it that's your riches? For, for everybody in here, you have something that is your riches. It's something that you place the highest value on. It might be your kids. It might be money. It might be financial security. It might be your job. It might be your attractiveness. Something that you place ultimate value in. What Paul is saying is make that God's word. Make this your ultimate value. Make it the thing that you want the most of. Fill up on God's word. Why though? Again, this is like the peace thing. It's not individual. It's a corporate thing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly. Here's the second thing I want you to see from verse 16. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Why should you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Because God is calling you to teach and admonish other people with all wisdom. 
All of us should be teachers. This is, uh, teaching and admonishing is not a pastor thing. It's a Christian thing. God has given us his word for your own personal benefit, of course, yes, but for corporate benefit as well, for communal benefit, because I need you to teach me. I need you to admonish me with God's word and all wisdom. And if you're not there yet, I'm going to give you some points. So first of all, some of you are called to teach in front of a group. Not everybody is going to stand up in front of people and teach and preach. All of you are called to speak words from God's word to each other. All of you are called to do that. And if you're not prepared, it's because you're not dwelling in this richly. Some of you, though, are like, I don't even know if I can get there right now. I just have a hard time talking to people. I feel like I'm confusing. I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, Paul gives us, here's the third thing. Paul gives us a way to teach and admonish without actually talking to people. And it goes like this. Teaching and admonishing, look at verse 16 again. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You teach and admonish God's word when you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are all called to sing. So, so we, can, we come together at church and we sing. And it's not just, it's kind of weird for adults to get together and sing nowadays. Why do we do it? Is this because, well, we, you know, kids sing songs in kindergarten. Or maybe it's time filler, you know, singing songs. Actually, no, it's because God calls us to teach and admonish his word and all wisdom to each other. We are called to sing and when you sing in church, it teaches and admonishes me, okay? Now, some of you are like, well, how can, you have theological degrees, how can we teach it? First of all, you overestimate, like, how much I know, which is not a lot. First of all, though, information, I don't, that's one thing I don't need. Like, I can read the Bible. I, I can read this. It's not the main thing that I need. You know what I need, though, from you guys? You know what you need from me? I need you to teach me that God is beautiful, when I walk into a church and people are they're singing or they're saying the creed together or they're praying the Lord's Prayer together and they're just kind of like half button it in, they're just kind of like mumbling. I always, now I'm a Christian. I, I, I believe in Jesus. I walk in and I think, but these people don't believe this stuff. It's not interesting to them at all. There's nothing about this that like captures them. I don't, I don't know why they're here, but it's not because they're like in love with this thing. If I'm an unbeliever, I got to tell you, if I walk into a church and people are kind of mumbling, I'm like, oh, these people all get it. It's fake, and they're just here to say the magic spells and go home. That's what I'm thinking. But when I walk into a church where people are passionate about God's word, I'm not saying that you got to be like singing as loud as you can, but when, when, when you walk into a church, uh, when you walk into a worship space and people are singing like they actually believe in it, it teaches me that God is beautiful. Like, I know, I know facts from Scripture, but I want to know that my brothers and sisters are in love with Jesus. I want to know that they've been captured by his glory. And when you do that, you teach and admonish. Maybe it's not like, I'm going to say four things about the book of Ezekiel that you need to know. It's something much more important than that. It's the character of God that gets illuminated on your faces and comes flying out of your voices. That's deeply important. Now, I know so, so every single person in here is going to say, well, what if I don't like the music? And if I say to you, why are you saying that? Every single person is going to say, because sometimes I don't like the music. Every single one of us, sometimes we don't like the music. That's not what Paul's talking about here. <laughs> He's talking about singing because it's God's word. Singing because it's God's word. And so let's be faithful to teach each other. I'm going to come back to the fourth thing in just a few minutes, but that's the word of Christ. Live in it richly. Teach it well. Whether it's out loud, some of you are great teachers. Some of you don't teach very much. 
You can do that with, your, with, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Last thing, and then we'll be done. This is the most important thing. The name of Christ in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in verses, just to summarize, in verses 12 through 14, we have the love of Christ. Verse 15 tells us about the peace of Christ. Verse 16 tells us about the word of Christ. And now verse 17 tells us about the name of the Lord Jesus, the name of Christ. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you why this is the most important one. Because the love of Jesus, the peace of Jesus, and the word of Jesus are all things that if you misunderstand them, you might think those are things I can do. You might think that Paul is saying, okay, go out and have the love of Jesus. Go out and have the peace of Jesus. Go get into the word of Jesus on your own. Go teach the word of Jesus. But the name of Jesus, the fourth one, the capstone, is something that clearly you can't do. You can't like, okay, I'm gonna go do the name of Jesus. Now, the name of Jesus is not something you do, it's something you are. The name of Jesus is something, it's your identity. Now, what, what does it mean to do something? He says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you say or do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to do things in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, you guys know this. When you do something in the name of somebody, you're doing it under their auspices, under their authority. In essence, they're doing it but they're using you to do it. So just a few minutes ago, I baptized Caden. And when I baptized Caden, I did not say, I'm, Caden, I'm baptizing you today. Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church. I did not say that. Why? Because I don't have the authority to baptize. I can't baptize people. You can't baptize people. Now, sometimes we're called to. I do it as a pastor. Sometimes there will be situations, maybe in your life, I hope not, where this is a dramatic situation and you need to baptize somebody. Uh, by the way, on the back of the hymnal, there's an a, a order for doing an emergency baptism. But what do we say when we baptize? We say, I baptize you, Caden, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What am I saying? That, so, so I'm standing up here, it's my hand in the water, but I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. It's actually Jesus doing it. By the way, this is, the, the scripture teaches this, look, 10 second commercial. The scripture never says that you need to get baptized to show that you believe in Jesus or as a confession of faith in Jesus or the first step of obedience after you get saved. The scripture never says that. Instead, the scripture says that Jesus baptizes us and other people baptize us in the name of Jesus. We do it in the name of Jesus. So, so to baptize Caden is actually what I'm saying is that Jesus is doing it and he's doing it through me and I acknowledge that by saying I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. Another example real quick. You guys maybe have heard me do this before. So, so you're living in a 1970s cop show, which that would be super cool. You're living in a 1970s cop show and somebody pounds on your door and says, open up in the name of the law. What do they mean? What the cop means when he or she says, open up in the name of the law is not, I'm here and I'm super tough and super cool and I've got a gun so you've got to open up. Like, they don't mean, hey, as a fellow human being, open up. You would just be like, no, I don't need to open up for you. Instead, what they say is open up, at least in the TV show, at least in the Rockford Files, Open up in the name of the law. Now, what, 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 what's the cop saying? Open up. But it's not me out here. I've got a badge on and, and a uniform, but it's not me that's telling you to open up. I'm actually representing something bigger than me, the law of the land behind me. And when I come to your door and pound on the door to tell you to open up, I'm telling you to do it as a representative of the law, which is actually telling you to do that. Does that make sense? When we're told everything that we do do it in the name of Jesus. What he's saying is this, is everything that you can do, I'm doing it already. The love of Christ 
I don't have to primarily show the love of Christ because the love of Christ is something that Christ shows. I don't have to primarily show the peace or live in the peace of Christ because the peace of Christ is something that Christ has. It's not my job to teach you the word of Christ because, primarily because Christ, Christ has a mouth. He can speak. It's Christ's word. And when, I do, when we do all those three things, we do it in the name of Jesus, which shows it's, it's him that's doing it. I don't, have to, like, so, I don't have to love you to prove that I'm a Christian. I don't have to love you to live out my faith. I don't have to love you as some sort of evidence that I really have the Holy Spirit. Jesus is already doing the loving. I just have to live in it. I don't forgive you or you don't forgive me because it's somehow like, you know, something that's a good work that we're doing. We do it because Jesus has forgiven us and all the forgiveness in the entire universe has already been happening and now we're just kind of moving into it. I, when I stand up here and preach, I don't have to like deliver God's word to you. Christ delivers his own word to you. I just have to stand up here and tell you what he's saying. Does this make sense? The peace of Christ is something that Christ has already won for us on the cross. Let me, I, I didn't read this text. Let me go back to this text. It's, the peace of Christ is, Paul says this in Ephesians 2, Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one Two opposed people, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. You have relational distress. You need peace in your life. It's Christ that has the power to take two opposing forces and make them new in himself. Create one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God. Jesus reconciles us to God, reconciles us to each This is something that Jesus does. Like, you don't have to, like, will it. Like, I'm going to make this relationship work. Christ is already one. You just got to live in the gospel. And that fixes relationships. That's what the name of Christ is all about. There's two more ways. I'm going to be finished here in a second. There's two more ways that this text emphasizes that it's Christ's work, not ours. And then when we do it, it's just in the name of Jesus. It's Jesus doing it through us. One way is this. Go back to the very beginning of the text in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and then he goes on. We're supposed to put on the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ because we have the name of Christ. What, what does it look like in verse 12? He calls us chosen ones. He calls us holy. He calls us beloved. Do you have to do anything? Christians, do you have to do anything for God to love you more? No, he, he already calls you beloved. He's not saying, I'm telling you what to do. If you want to earn my love, you got to go be nice to people. You got to go be loving and forgiving and have peace. He's telling you you already loved. Do you have to do anything in order to be, to, to be holy? No, he's already calling you his holy ones. Do you have to do anything to get in God's family? No, he's already call, calling you chosen ones. There's nothing, there's nothing that I can do to become more Angela's husband. I can, I, now, I, should, should, I, should I love her? Should I receive and offer forgiveness? Should I tr try to live in the peace of God with her? Should I be kind? Should I get her flowers and stuff like that? Well, yeah, but it doesn't, whatever I do, I'm, she's chosen me. I'm her husband. That's the bottom line. My kids don't have to do anything to demonstrate to me that they're loving enough to be my son. They already are living in my name. The back half of their birth certificate says Miller, and they can't change that. There's nothing that can pull them away from that. There's nothing that can make them more a Miller. They're already in. Now that they're Millers, let's love each other. Let's have peace with each other. Let's dwell on God's word. That's, here's the last thing I'll be done. The last way you see it here. This is, I don't, did any of you notice this? This is kind of cool. Look at the last part of verse 15. And be thankful, he says. That's the peace of Christ. Look at the last part of verse 16, the word of Christ verse. Sing songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Last part of verse 17. This is the name of Christ. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why would Paul, three verses back to back to back, say, finish up with and give thanks? Because he's emphasized. Why do you give thanks to somebody? You don't give thanks to yourself for the good things you do, unless you're the kind of weirdo that talks to yourself. You give thanks to people when they do things for you. And by saying, give thanks, he's saying, you got to acknowledge this isn't you. This is all Christ working through you. So that when you have the word of Christ dwelling you richly, when you're singing those songs and hymns and spiritual songs, when you're living in the peace of Christ with your fellow, uh, fellow brothers and sisters, when the, with the community, when you're dwelling richly in the word of Christ, when you have the love of Christ so that you're freed up to forgive, know that it's me that's doing it, and so give thanks to me. All of this, and this is, circle back here. This is what Christmas is about, right? Jesus puts himself into our flesh. He becomes a human being so that the love of God can now be ours. We're plugged into him so that God loves us like he loves his son and empowers us to love each other. God has peace with us. He's reconciled to us like he's reconciled with us, with his son, and empowers us to be reconciled with, his, with each other. God talks to us. He gives us his word like he gives to his son and empowers us to speak the word to each other. And we do all of this because we are in Jesus. And so we give thanks for being in the name of Jesus. Stand with me and let's pray. And we'll have communion with each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a good God and for loving us and for putting us into, the, for putting us into this relationship with you. And Father, I pray for anybody here who is not in this relationship yet, who does not have access to your love and to your peace and to your word and to your name. I pray that you would draw them to faith. Give them hope in you. Help them understand that the relationship brokenness of their lives, the physical brokenness of their lives, the financial brokenness, the concerns that they have, the worries, that they can all be met by you. Father, be with those of us who are believers who don't faithfully live out your gospel, who for some reason don't live in the forgiveness of your son Jesus and are reluctant to offer it to others, who don't live in the peace of your son Jesus and are reluctant to offer it to others, who don't live in your word and so are incapable of offering it to others. Father, help us to see that these good gifts are gifts that we already have. They've been given to us by you and to live in them, to dwell in them richly so that we can embody your love for the world through us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you be with Caden and that you would bless him and that we thank you for his baptism and for the word of your word, which he's already heard, which is already being poured into him and over his life as he studies your word and has taught your word and remembers his baptism and um, uh, eventually comes to the table that throughout his life that he would never know a single moment in time when he's not aware that you, Father, the creator of the universe, love him so much, more than even his parents love him, more than he loves himself, that you, the God of love, loves him. Help him, to, help him to live in that all his days. Help all of us live to live in our baptisms in the knowledge that you love us all our days. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray this morning that you be with everybody who is struggling with uh, sickness and brokenness, uh, financial problems, physical problems, relational problems, uh, mental health issues, whatever it might be, anxiety and stress and depression. Whatever it might be, Father, would you meet us where we're at and would you give us healing by the power of your resurrected Son? I pray especially this morning that you'd be with my father who's in hospital and that you would give him healing and energy and strength into his body and bring him home soon. Help all of us, Father, to grasp onto and by faith hold on to the promises of your resurrection, that you've defeated death, you've defeated all the evil things, and that you are in the process of making all things new. Give us the hope of that resurrection, Lord, in your mercy. Those of us who are Christians, Father, pray this prayer because you've made us your children. 
You've made us your daughters and your sons. You've united us to our brother Jesus, who with you is the one true God along with the Holy Spirit. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's confess our faith this morning with the words of the Apostles' Creed. This is in your bulletin. Again with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together now in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a word uh, real quick about taking communion. If, you, uh, if you're interested in taking communion and you haven't here before, read the, read the bit in the front of the bulletin about who's welcome at the table. We're not saying that people are better than others, but like when you come to the table, one of the things that well, a lot, what you're confessing essentially is that you're a sinner and that you're broken and that you need help from outside of yourself for salvation. That help comes in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through his death and resurrection. And specifically here at a Lutheran church, you're confessing that when we come to the rail in the bread and wine, we receive Christ himself, all of Christ, Christ spiritually, Christ physically, that Christ is giving all of himself to us for our salvation. If you can confess that, then you're more than welcome to come to the rail. Again, read the notice in the front of the bulletin. And if you have any questions, it's totally fine to wait until next week and come and talk to me between now and then. All right, you may be seated. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen.
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Merry Christmas, everybody.